Hello and welcome back. Today I'm talking to Corrie DeAngelis, the director of the School Choice Programme at the Reason Foundation. Corrie, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Now, 2020 has been a bit of a grim year for free marketeers, for people who love liberty. For a start, we find that we've had these extensive lockdowns, these shutdowns, which um, have obviously been pretty miserable. We've also seen election contests with candidates standing in them who I think it's fair to say on both sides of the Atlantic are not exactly offering us more in the way of classical free market liberalism. Even worse, there's this cult of intersectionalism taking over many of the institutions in Western civic society. But if there's one glimmer of hope, I think it's what's happening with school choice. Why is this so important? And, and what is it that you, the band of fellow travelers that you lead, have been doing to make it a reality? Yeah, just really quickly, I just want to give for the audience a quick definition of what I mean when I say school choice, because a lot of people get lost when, when you just <laughs> mention the word school choice. They, they don't know exactly what you're talking about. But the way that I like to describe it is uh, getting to pick the school that uh, your child uh, attends and having that money follow them to whatever type of institution works best for them. That could be a public school, charter school, private school, a homeschool option. And the, the easy way to think about it is to have the funding follow the student instead of the institution. In the United States, currently, you live in a residence, and uh, you have to send your child to a particular institution that you're residentially assigned to, which creates a lot of monopoly power in the traditional public school system in the United States. So the idea here, again, is funding the student instead of the institution, just like we do with so many other uh, taxpayer-funded initiatives in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, just think about things like higher education in the U.S. We have the Pell Grant. Uh, and the GI Bill. And in, in these uh, taxpayer-funded programs, the money goes to the student, and the student can pick a public or private university of their choosing, a religious or non-religious university of their choosing, and they aren't residentially assigned to a particular community college that they have to spend that money at. Same thing with the pre-K programs in the United States. Generally, the money doesn't go to a residentially assigned pre-K service provider. It goes to the family, and the family rightfully has a choice, public or private provider of pre-K services. And you can keep going on and on with these examples that people who oppose funding the student directly when it comes to K through 12, they support all of these other initiatives that fund people directly when it comes to food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, even social security dollars, um, pre-K programs, higher education, Pell Grants, and GI Bills, all of those other programs, the money, if it's going to be spent, rightfully goes to the people instead of a, an institution that doesn't really have a, a particularly strong incentive to do a good job uh, because of that monopoly power. And I think school choice is on the move here in the United States as far as support for school choice because of the pandemic. Some people might say that uh, the the, the response that the teachers unions have had to the pandemic and the public school systems response or lack of a uh, legitimate response to the to the pandemic uh, has really given people a a new reason to think about how education is funded in the United States. They're seeing that the teachers unions are pushing for the schools to remain closed so they're having to do a lot of the work at home the families are and the money staying in the closed building which 
a lot of people are saying that that doesn't make any sense. In any other business, if your grocery store closes, they don't get to keep taking your money each week. You could take your money to the the other grocery store that wanted to open their doors. If your Walmart doesn't reopen, you could take your money elsewhere. If your school doesn't reopen, you should similarly be able to take your money elsewhere. I want to pick you up on, on that point, that very point. If we were to create a system so that if you lived in one neighborhood, you had to shop at that branch of Walmart or in the UK, it would be Sainsbury's or Tesco's. People wouldn't put up with it. If we suddenly announced that anyone in receipt of food stamps wasn't gonna get those food stamps anymore, we were gonna give it to McDonald's and McDonald's was gonna decide what food you and your family ate (laughs) if you were on food stamps. We wouldn't put up with it. So why do we put up with this when it comes to our kids' schools? I think the problem is that uh, there's a special interest at play here. We, the default system is there's an institution that gets your money regardless of how well it meets your needs and regardless of whether you even send your child to that particular institution. If we had a system set up where you were residentially assigned to your nearest neighborhood government-run grocery store, well, the, there would be a union protecting those workers. There would be uh, a ton of people fighting really hard to keep it as at that situation at it, as it is. They'd they would start arguing about economies of scale. Look, if you I, I, if you I, shop somewhere else, you're going to be defunding the neighborhood grocery store. Do you not hear now, want people to have a well-funded grocery store? I can hear them now. I can hear them saying that if we let people choose their grocery store and choose their groceries, they might eat food that's bad for them. We hear exactly this with education. I've heard people yep. in yep. this country, in the UK, say you can't trust mums and dads to choose their child's schools because the mums and dads aren't experts. What, what do you say to that? Well, families, even uh, low-income families, have more information and incentives to get the decision right than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away who don't even know the names of your child. So families you know, have this information. They have the on-the-ground knowledge that, that members of the government just don't have. And then also, uh, the public school system is a one-size-fits-fits-all solution that doesn't work for every individual child. So, um, you know, being able to choose is 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 good for individuals to get what they need for their individual child. And then, I mean, just apply this logic to any other uh, industry. It's really hard to choose your your food, right? Because I'm not a nutrition expert, but I can choose my grocery store. I'm not a mechanic, but I can choose my uh, auto auto dealership. I'm not a um, a fashion expert, but I can choose uh, where my retail outlet that I that I shop at. All these, you know, you could make a similar argument for any other industry, but that wouldn't be a legitimate argument to take away people's individual liberties to choose all of these things in life just because it's a little complicated. Say, yeah, same thing with food. We don't tell people, oh, we're going to take your food stamp away. You got to shop at this government grocery store because, well, it's kind of difficult, you know, to make a decision about healthy eating. Now, one of the reasons why I think the idea of school choice is really taking off is, is partly, if I may say, because of the incredibly articulate way that you and, and Reason and others have been making the case. You, you're making the moral, not just the utilitarian case for it. And it, it's very difficult for people to, to, when they hear the simplicity of your arguments, I think it's very difficult for people to reject it. But another reason, I think, is because, as you alluded to earlier, this, this COVID shutdown. I've listened to trade unions here in the UK campaigning to shut the schools 
despite the fact that the mums and dads want them open, despite the fact that the local community wants them open, and despite the fact that the private schools, the non-unionized schools, are open. Why, what, why do you think teachers, what, what, what possesses someone to become a teacher if they don't like teaching? Why, 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 why don't we de-unionize the entire education sector and do what most people do in life, which is you have a job and if you don't like it, well, you know, go do something else. Yeah, I mean, the largest teacher union in the UK started a petition recently to keep the all schools, um, primary, secondary, and colleges, I believe, closed in the UK yeah. for their second lockdown since it wasn't included in, in the second lockdown. Now they're, they're, maybe they're learning a little bit from the US and saying, oh, well, maybe we should try that too and, and keep our schools closed. But I think it's because of a cost-benefit decision-making framework. It's arguably rational, at least in the United States, for educators to fight to keep the schools closed because they can keep their benefits around the same in terms of job security and pay without reduce, with, with, and, and while substantially reducing the costs in terms of work requirements, in terms of commute times, in terms of any sort of risk, no matter how low that is in the school buildings. And so just from a cost-benefit decision-making standpoint, it makes sense for them to lobby to keep the schools closed. Just imagine if your neighborhood grocery store got your money for groceries that they didn't provide to you, regardless of whether they even opened their doors uh, for you, they would, they would have a much different incentive structure than they have today. So I don't think it's about motivations. I don't think it's that, you know, people that are unionized are, are bad people or anything, or, or that people in the private sector are inherently better. I think it's just that they're responding rationally to incentives that are baked into a messed up system, particularly in the U.S. where you have residential assignment, compulsory funding through property taxes. It makes sense for them to fight to keep the schools closed. But if we had school choice, it wouldn't matter if they protested to keep the schools closed because they, if they kept their schools closed and that didn't work for families, well, then families could take their money elsewhere. And I think that's why we're seeing with the grocery stores, they could have made similar arguments. They could have said, oh, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's too risky. We don't want to, you know, they could have poured into the streets and protested and kept the grocery stores closed. And they could have made arguments that the schools are arguing for. Like right now, the schools are saying, you know, we're not childcare providers. We are um, educators and we're just here to provide the information through the airwaves. The grocery stores could have said something like, oh, we're not here to give you nice in-person uh, customer service. We're here to deliver you groceries. You can order groceries online. So you shouldn't be able to force us to reopen in person. The thing is, you don't need force when it comes to grocery stores because the incentives are aligned yeah. in that they know if they did that, if they said, oh, well, you could just do it online, they know that their customers do value the in-person experience and that they would lose a lot of money, they'd lose their jobs, but you don't have that with the school system. So I think that's why you have a different you know, um, uh, uh, push in, in the different sectors. And then, yeah, even with private versus public schools in the US, the private schools are fighting to reopen, the public schools are still fighting to remain closed. And it's because one of the sectors gets your money regardless of how well they meet your needs. It's, it's when I was a member of parliament in British and I often used to advocate very aggressively for school choice and I, I was always prepared to take on local unions and I, I actually campaigned for local mums and dads to be given a, a home education grant so that if they were fed up with the system they could, they could home educate their children entirely by themselves and, and that's something I, I, I strongly believe in. But one of the most effective lines 
I used to use when advocating for this is look, at the moment, rich people get choice. Rich people can either pay the fees for private school or they can live in the neighborhoods where they get access to a good school. But this is about giving ordinary blue collar folk and actually some other low income parents the opportunities and the choices for their kids that today rich people have. And I, 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 is it the same in America? Is there very much a, 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 a division between rich yep. people and poor people? Yeah, rich people already have school choice. Rich people can already afford to live in the neighborhood that's residentially assigned to the best public schools in America. So you can buy your way into the best public schools. They're not actually public in any meaningful sense of the word because they're not open to the public. They're not a public good. They're exclusive. They discriminate by zip code based on where you live. Um, and yeah, rich people can already afford to pay out of pocket for private school after paying for the public school through the property tax system. So school choice is an equalizer in that it allows less advantaged families to take advantage of these uh, op opportunities as well. And I mean, if you look at response to the pandemic, we have things in the US that people are setting up little homeschool co-ops that people are coining the term uh, pandemic pods in the media. And a lot of the media is saying that, oh, these are leading to inequities to which I would respond, well, I think it's not the families that are leading to the inequities, making choices that are right for their, for, their, for their children. It's the schools leading to these inequities for not reopening. But then two, they're missing the obvious solution. They all just uh, end it there and just say, this is a problem. They don't come up with a solution. Um, one solution could be open the schools and give everybody options for in-person instruction. But then two, the better solution, in my opinion, is to allow the money to follow the child so that more families can access pandemic pods. And so, yeah, I think the idea of allowing the funding to be used for homeschooling and micro-schooling is a great idea as well. And in the United States, we have something called, in some states, not, you know, this is the exception to the rule, we have things called education savings accounts. It's kind of like the voucher that you can take to a private or public school, but it's, it goes into the form, the money goes into the, an, a savings account for the child, then you could use it for public or private school, but uh, it really gets us from school choice to education choice because you can use it for non-school activities like uh, homeschooling. Um, how, so some people how, would call that not, not formal schooling. How widespread is this personalized savings education account? Is it, is it across all states? Is it a, is it a federal initiative? Nope, uh, only five states have it, you know, we have 50 states in the US and DC, and uh, only five states have education savings accounts uh, but every single state that has an education savings account is limited to students with special needs. So it's, they're very small programs, but some states are bigger than others when it comes to voucher programs. For example, Florida and Arizona are two good states that have a high degree of school choice, but then you have other states that don't have any private school choice, like uh, Washington uh, State and California. Uh, but California did have something interesting that you could use some funding from the state to cover homeschool expenses if you're enrolled in a virtual charter school. Well, charter schools are on paper uh, public schools in the United States. So there's a kind of a workaround there in California. But if you're looking at, you know, at the entire school age population in the US, about 50 million uh, students, only about uh, a half a percent of the student population in the US is actually using a private school choice program, either through a voucher or an education savings account. We also have something called a tax credit scholarship, which is a similar uh, type of idea, but it's a very small phenomenon, but it's, it's growing a lot in places like Florida and Arizona. 
we, we, we've emulated um, the American idea of charter schools in the UK. We call them free schools, and it's a similar thing. It's, it's funded by the taxpayer. And I think you're not allowed to select on the basis of academic ability uh, yet. Um, but other than that, they are completely autonomous. They're as independent as Eton colleges. They, they run their own affairs and they get some extraordinary results. I mean, some of the free schools in this part of West London get some of the best results in the country. The problem is, is that there are hardly any and they're massively, massively, massively popular. They're massively popular, particularly amongst first-generation Britons. I, I, I have a, a child of my own, and I used to take her to a maths tuition program called Kumon, which is a, a well-known Japanese uh, tu tu maths tuition program. And I was always amazed at how often I'd be waiting for my daughter to come out of the Kumon tuition. And there would be these other mums and dads from you know, West Africa, from Ethiopia, from the Middle East, you know, obviously recently arrived in the UK, but who valued education and who clearly were scrimping and saving their own money to give their kids that maths tuition and who were desperate to get their kids into free schools. Imagine if you could give all of those parents, not just a lucky few, but all of them, the freedom to choose the right school for their parents or for their, for their kids. It, it would it would transform the life chances of those kids. It really would. The moral case for it is unassailable. Yeah, I mean, we have, yeah, charter schools in the U.S. are about 6% of the school age population in the U.S. So those have grown a lot in the past three decades. Our first charter school law was in 1990 in the U.S. So about 30 years we've had them. They've grown from obviously 0% to 6% of the school age population. And yes, they can't charge tuition, so they're free um, to, to, to the point of the consumer, at least they're indirectly funded through the taxpayer system. But uh, they do have long wait lists, right? And, and it is like in the UK where you can't have selective admissions in general. It's, it's random lottery admissions. Whoever applies gets in. And it's funny because the other side, who you know, the defenders of the government school system will say that you know, charter schools pick and choose. Well, that's not true. They have to use random admissions, whereas the public, the traditional public schools, they can pick and choose based on where you live. If you don't live next to the fancy school, you can't get into the fancy school. And families have actually gone to jail in the U.S. for trying to get their children into better, quote unquote, public schools by lying about their addresses yeah. to, try to, I, to try to get in. When I was a constituency MP, I had constituents coming to see me because they had been caught by authorities for lying about where they lived. And I, I always sided with them every single time. Some, some laws are so immoral that they deserve to be ignored. And that's one of them. Now, Donald Trump, he's been president for four years. Is he big on this school choice agenda? What, what's he, what has he done over the past four years to advance it at a federal level? He's, yes, he's a big school choice supporter in terms of charter schools and private school choice programs. The main thing he's done, I would say, is use the bully pulpit very effectively. He's, he's been a very big advocate for school choice. He's appointed uh, Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, which the union really hates Betsy DeVos. They, they and, hate uh, her, yeah, that, and the fact yeah, that they measure how good she is. <laughs> Yes, I mean, if the union comes out against your education secretary, maybe that's a that's a, a good idea. Joe Biden, on the other hand, has um, his team has. Uh, there's been reports in the Washington Post that if he wins, he might appoint uh, two of the people he's thinking about are uh, either the current head of the teachers union or the former head of the, the of the teachers union in the U.S. The the uh, two largest teachers unions in the U.S. So 
Um, you know, Trump got Betsy DeVos, his, his administration also expanded the DC voucher program. I live here in, in the nation's capital. They've had, they have something called the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, which is targeted to low-income families. I think the average household income of the families using this program in DC are, is only around $27,000 uh, per year in the household. Uh, in U.S. dollars, and uh, so he's expanded that. But yes, um, there is about five bills in Congress right now pushing for school choice, and the main one that they're pushing for is called the School Choice Now Act by Senators Tim Scott and Lamar Alexander. But we have a split Congress, so it's you know even though there's bills in Congress right now, the House is not likely to to pass any of these five bills for school choice unless it's you know tied to a stimulus or something. But that's not likely. To happen either. Now, such is the genius of the American Constitution that there are lots of different ways in which you can try to affect change. You just you don't just have to rely on the fiat of the federal authorities. One thing I've always paid great attention to are some of the local initiatives. I know every time there's an election, you in different states get a, a ballot initiative. Um, a few years ago, I remember in Florida, I think there was a, an attempt to try to give local mums and dads in Florida a legal right to request and receive control over their child's share of the education budget. Is that another vehicle? Should we, should we be pushing to try to do this at a state level? And should we be trying to yes, changes yeah. to legislation through popular initiative? Yeah, there's about 63, 64 uh, private school choice programs in the U.S., and all but one of them are at the state level. You know, you have the D.C. voucher program, which is obviously at the federal level. It's the only school choice program authorized by Congress just because it's a federal district. But uh, the vast majority of funding at the, in the K-12 through education system, primary and secondary in the U.S., is state and local funding, about 92% of funding for K through 12 education, which the total funding in the U.S. is about, uh, on the national average is about 15,424 U.S. dollars per child per year in traditional public schools. Um, uh, and 92% of that is state and local. So even if something like Rand Paul, U.S. Senator from Kentucky, for example, he's called for the School Act, which is to reallocate essentially all of the existing federal education dollars from the buildings to the students, which would be a step in the right direction, but that's only about 8% of the total uh, education funding. So it wouldn't be as, as big as, as, as what we would like. What we want is you know, nearly 100% of all funding to follow the child. We spend you know, over 15,000, maybe 12,000 of that follows the child to wherever they, they get an education. And you're gonna need state and local governments uh, to pass that. So the state legislature is usually where it passes, not even at while the funding is state and local, the, 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 what we've seen historically is that the state legislatures are the ones that, that pass these types of programs. I, I guess, too, a little bit like with welfare reform a generation ago, having different states, I think with welfare, it was Wisconsin who, who seemed to come up with all the bright ideas and everyone copied them. Um, is there a particular state at the moment that is doing something that we should keep an eye on? Is there a particular state? We, we talked about California as being a basket case when it came to unionization. <laughs> are, there, are there states out there that are actually leading the way that we should try and emulate? Yeah, so Florida uh, is the best state for private school choice right now. And just this year, 
um, even though they're already ahead as far as the percent of students that have access to these types of programs, they have five voucher program or private school type uh, uh, initiatives in Florida already. And this year alone, the governor signed into law an expansion of their program to expand the number of students eligible that, that can access these funds by up to about 25,000 students a year. So they're already ahead and then they, they signed into this uh, huge, his, this, this historic biggest expansion of school choice programs ever in U.S. history happened this year in Florida. So if you if you like school choice, look to Florida. They have a bunch, they have the voucher, they have tax, tax credit scholarships, they have uh, education savings accounts, and they're getting bigger and bigger. And um, But there isn't any state yet that has it available to everyone. That's how it should be. It should be everybody has access to this. We fund, we already fund it, fund uh, K through 12 education for every child in, in the U.S. We might as well reallocate those existing dollars from the institutions to the students. And places like Florida are taking the, the step in the right, right direction, but uh, we're not there yet. Now, now we know that if you allow choice, one of the reasons why it's 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 right, the right thing to do is not not just because it um, gives mums and dads control, which is a, a, a good in itself. It actually raises standards. Schools have to compete for pupils, compete for the funding, and you get innovation and and you get consumer power. Um, I wonder if it would change other aspects of of the education system. I let me put it like this: if if my child spent a long time looking at the BBC or at CNN, I would be very concerned because I would be wary that they might be given a view about current events that was based on the prejudices of the people who make those news programs. But I can't help wondering that when we send our kids off to certain classrooms, they're having the equivalent of seven, eight hours exposure, or five, six hours of exposure to a CNN strike BBC worldview. I, mm-hmm. I picked up an issue my child came home with the other day and she was talking to me about how um, you know, global trade exploited some countries. And I, I spent a long time going through this with her and explaining to her that actually you know, the reason why global trade happens is because even poorer folk involved in the supply chains are better off by trading with other countries than not trading. And I, yep. I, I just wonder, if yep. we had school choice, would we begin to see less of this aggressive left-wing propaganda in our kids' classrooms. Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest arguments for school choice. A lot of the arguments for school choice have been about academic standards, about um, improving academic outcomes, but school is much more than just academics, and you can see that from what we're, what was, what's being reported you know, in, in the public school system in the U.S. People are complaining about indoctrination in one way or the other, and so if you feel that your child is being literally indoctrinated in schools in a political fashion that you don't agree with, you should not be forced to send your child there and, and to have your money fund that institution. And look, this can go both ways. You may be a family that thinks this is too uh, you know, left-leaning propaganda in one school, but maybe you're in a rural area and you're more of a left-leaning family and maybe um, there's too much like Trump support, support going on in, in a particular public school. I think we're, we see more of that happening where it's left-leaning stuff going on in the classroom, but it is certainly possible that it could be too right-leaning in a particular public school. So this, this is a good argument for everyone to be able to take their children's education dollars to a better institution that's not indoctrinating their children and is focusing on what the family wants, wants the school to focus on. 
Now, I want to touch on one really sensitive issue, particularly for Europeans, um, slightly less so for Brits and probably not so much for Americans, and it's to do with religion. France has recently, I think, announced that they're going to ban all homeschooling. And the rationale for that is because they fear they've got a big problem with radical political Islamism, and they fear that perhaps if they're not careful, they'll find they've got these sort of homeschools that are raising, well, in effect, madrasas that are radicalizing young people. I, I, I disagree with what the French president has announced, but I, I understand why. We don't obviously in Britain want to end up in a situation where the government is trying to prevent people from religious liberty, but how do you respond to those who might say, hang on a minute, what happens if someone uses public money in Florida to run a religious school that either teaches creation theory as science or teaches that the musings of a sixth century prophet should be regarded as, as the law? Where, where do we draw the boundaries in that, particularly in, in the United States, where you've got a long history of, of, of religion and secularism coexisting? Yeah, we need to be okay with uh, pluralism in our society. We need to be okay with the idea that people don't agree with us on every single thing. Um, and so that's um, you know, a good argument to uh, just allow the funding, to because you, you can make the same argument about the public schools. There are a lot of families who vehemently disagree with the political indoctrination going on in the public schools, but school choice supporters aren't saying that, oh, well, you, know, you shouldn't have the choice to go to a public school. No, we're saying, look, you do you, let me do me, you know, with, with my family. And if you want to choose the public school, it's fine. A lot of people think that school choice is anti-public school. That's, that's a myth, right? It's, it's just pro-choice and pro-family and, and pro-freedom. I'm okay with you choosing the public school. The funding should be able to allow to, should be able to follow the child to public or private, religious or non-religious. And you don't hear this about um, pre-K and Pell Grants. And I think it's, again, because of this power dynamic, that with pre-K and Pell Grants, the norm in higher education and, and pre-K services is that you already have a high deg degree of choice. When it comes to K through 12, you have entrenched special interest that profits from getting your, from getting your money regardless of your choices. So you don't hear the same, there's, there's religious universities, there's religious uh, pre-K centers, but you don't hear the same argument. But yeah, I mean, this is an argument against taxation altogether. It's not an argument against school choice um, because you can apply this to the public schools as as well mm -hmm. and in in france yes it's it's more about um uh the uh islamic education i believe is what the president of france is talking about but um i don't think preventing people from homeschooling is going to fix that that problem that they have in france you know you can still your family can still um instill those values in, to their children with or without um uh, allowing homeschooling. So I think the um, president is identifying the problem that a lot of people agree is, is a problem, but his solution won't fix the problem. And it could, you know, in, in the U.S., there's a study looking at homegrown terrorists in the U.S. by Denise Shaquille and Patrick Wolf, and they actually found that terror, the successful terrorist attacks in the U.S. in recent times this, the individuals are more likely to be, they're disproportionately educated in the public school system than the private school system. Because you hear similar arguments in the US that, oh, the, they, were, they, know, they, they might they, become terrorists if, they're, if they go to private schools. But the evidence doesn't suggest that either. There was a, a, a bombing 
in London a few years ago, and some of the ringleaders of that terrorist attack were not just the product of the public school system. Some of them actually taught in the public school system. So I think the idea that the way to fight radical terrorism is to force everyone to, to, to uh, give up um, on private schooling and private education is, is, is a nonsense. I, I, I think not for the first time, perhaps, and I say this with respect, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of France, but I think the, the French president may be not for the first time wielding a sledgehammer to miss a nut by banning homeschooling, but that's, that's a problem for France rather than, rather than for us. Um, drawing, drawing things to a, 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 a close, if I may, in, in Britain, there's long been a, a social distinction and an economic distinction quite pronounced between public and private. About 7% about of people in the UK go to private schools. Um, the rest go to government-run schools. And yet you get huge over-representation of private school um, kids when they grow up in, in all walks of life, from the judiciary to the top professions, to even the Olympic team. Um, I wonder if one of the consequences of school choice in Britain, giving ordinary people the same choice and freedoms that, that rich people have, might be actually to dissolve the distinction between public and private. Because it would be, if you like, the, a, 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 a publicly subsidized um, school fee for everyone. And so that, that distinction between private and public would, would become much, much less relevant. And, and perhaps you could get public schools that were so good that people who would otherwise have previously paid fees would actually send their kids to them. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's one of the big advantages of it, isn't it? Yeah, I believe that's, that's true. And we hinted at this earlier, that school choice is an equalizer. And it, what's interesting is a lot of politicians who sent their own kids to private school or attended private schools themselves will uh, fight really hard against allowing less advantaged families to send their children to private schools through uh, school choice mechanisms. So it's an interesting thing to point out that hypocrisy. But yes, it could be that you know, school choice, particularly in the US where you have residential assignment, is a rising tide that lifts all boats that improves the public schools too, because then the public schools scratch their head a little bit and they think, oh, it, you know, we're losing some money when we lose some enrollment, so maybe we should do a little better. And so there's 28 studies on this in the US, what happens in response to school choice competition through private school choice mechanisms. 26 of those 28 studies find statistically significant positive competitive effects on the public schools um, because they start to reallocate resources in a more effective manner. Um, and so you don't even have to, have to really use these school choice mechanisms to benefit from it because your school improves through those competitive pressures. Often when I was in the House of Commons, I would enter into exchanges, let's put it that way, fierce exchanges sometimes, with advocates of the idea that there shouldn't be school choice for anyone um, by people who would send their kids, as you point out, to, to, to private schools. And I never, I never criticized them for being hypocrites, actually, even though they were being hypocritical. I always cheered the fact that they had the opportunity to do the best for their kids. I just said, why don't you let everyone in the country have the, the choice that you you fortunately are able to to exercise. I, I, I think it's wonderful when a parent, whatever their politics, whatever their background, can do the best for their kids. And I, I think, you know, if we can argue in favor of allowing everyone to have that freedom, it becomes impossible to, to, to deny. Um, you've just had an election in America. And, you know, 
there's no other country in the world where people pay as much attention to the outcome of the election as, 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 as America. I think that, you know, that that's because not only is America the world's uh, greatest power, I think American democracy is, is still a, a city on a hill. It's still the example the world looks to. Um, what do you think going forward, given that whoever is in the White House, there's, there's no overall control of Congress, there's, there's big change recently in the Supreme Court. What, what, does this, what does this suggest for the future of classical liberals, of people who believe in choice and individualism? Is it, is it, is it a good outcome? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it going to be a, a difficult few years for us? What, what do you predict? Well, we, we don't know who, who's going to be the president yet. I'm just looking at the results down on my phone. It's, there's a lot of close races in particular states. It's coming down to the wire. Uh, but whoever becomes president, I think it really comes to the state and local level. Like we said earlier, um, most of the funding's at the state and local level. Historically, what we've seen is these programs happen at the state and local level. I mean, look, Trump was in office for four years and we didn't get the School Choice Now Act because of split Congress. So while he did a very good job with um, advocating for school choice, and maybe that led for, to some states to have an incentive and start thinking more about expanding school choice, it's really gonna come down to these state and local elections. And from what I'm hearing is that a lot of school choice champions won their, their elections at the state and local that level, which is a good sign for school choice coming in the future, regardless of what happens in the presidential election. And I think, again, with, with the pandemic, the public at large is more supportive of school choice. Uh, just since April, we did a national poll, um, found that support for school choice, uh, funding the student instead of the system, went up by 10 percentage points from 67% to 77% in the US in just a couple of months. And I think it's again, because people are seeing rightfully so that the school buildings are not even opening and they're still getting your child's education dollars. And so families are getting the short end of the sticks in so many places all across the, the world, mostly in the United States, um, because of this weird system we have set up that we fund the institution and not the student. And so I think this is, you know, clicking in people's minds that it, why fund the building and, instead of the student when we do this with almost any other taxpayer funded program, even with other education programs. So I think um, the tide is turning in support of school choice. It's just making more and more sense. And it's going to be really hard for the teachers unions to fight against truth much longer. Uh, Corey, um, have you heard of Joe Overton? Uh, the Overton window? Yeah. Yep. I mean, Joe, he, I think he was involved in the, the Mackinac Center. He's, he sadly died in a, a plane accident some years ago. But he, he talked about this idea of the Overton window. And when I first heard it, I didn't really understand it. But the more I've heard about it, the more I think actually Joe Overton was really onto something. It's, it's not so much how people vote that matters. It's, it's how people think. And it's shifting that perception of what is politically possible and what is acceptable. And I, I think what the Reason Foundation is doing and what you specifically have done on school choice is probably, dare I say, a lot more important. It, it might sound odd to say this, but it's a lot more important than a lot of those ballots that have been cast because what you're doing today is going to change the way that people are gonna vote in four years time, in, in, in 10 years time, in 20 years time. And if, if we popularize the moral case for school choice, you know, I, I hope that we'll see Democrats winning their seats 
in state legislatures in 20 years time by offering school choice. If, if, we, can, if we can get both Democrats and Republicans to sign up to this, and I think we can, then I, you know, I, 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 I think um, you know, we can have a Dutch auction where you know, everyone who said that you know, school choice was an impossible pipe dream, I, I, I hope to hear them explaining to you and me one day how it was their idea all along. So um, well done to you for what you're doing. I think it's making a huge difference and I think it will make a huge difference to the lives of, of people in America. As so often happens, when America innovates with crime, it was um, zero tolerance policing, with, with welfare, it was the Wisconsin welfare reforms. When America innovates at a state level, it's not just the other 49 states that often follow. You find that actually the rest of the world quite often follows. So good luck to you. Well done for making the choice, um, and you know I'd love to I'd love to keep in touch with you, and you know you keep us updated on on how many more states you can get to go the way of Florida. Thank you so much. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful, great. Was there anything else you wanted to say, um, Corey? Um, if, if anybody wants to hear more about um, taking down the myths of school choice. I have a new co-edited volume with the Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey called School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. You can get it on Amazon. I will put a link to that um, at the beginning and at the end of the show so that people who want to buy it can, can download it. Is it. It's available on Amazon and Kindle and um, fantastic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Corey, thank you so much. Keep in touch and keep up the good work.